So I used to be a youth pastor a long time ago, okay? And youth pastors are, are like, you just have to get good at icebreaker games, okay? So you got to do these little silly games to get to know each other. Um, and there's a game that I, I never used as a youth pastor. I wish I did, but I, I've learned it since uh, just in the last couple of years. A friend of mine, when we do um, some, some conferences together, smaller groups of pastors and wives that don't know each other, one of my buddies always leads with this game. I don't know what it's called, but the question is, uh, what do you do better than anyone in the room? And you just go around the room and everybody shares one thing they do better than anyone else in the room. And so we're all mostly in that room. We're going to be pastors and, and it's a little bit, you know, unchristian to be braggy, but it's not bragging if it's true, right? That's what Muhammad Ali says. Um, so <laughs> it's not bragging if it's true. And <laughs> that's what we go with. But anyways, so, uh, but that just got me thinking about this text because um, if, I, if I was to ask you, and there's obviously way too many people here to, to play the game, uh, but if I was to ask you just in your own mind to think about how you would answer that question um, and say, throw out all reservation, throw out all humility, and just brag about something that you're really good at, um, what do you think you'd choose? Just, you know, in your own head, think, what, what would that thing be? And it's, it's a harder question than we, we often think it would be. But if you had the time to process that and think about that, you would probably choose something kind of kind of quirky or impressive or kind of fun or something that you're going to, if you're in a group of people and you're just trying to get to know each other, you're going to say something that's not going to make you sound too weird and, and kind of kind of cool or like somebody would want to talk to you. Um, that's, that's what we do. We are all about kind of in those settings trying to impress people in, even in small little ways like that. And what we're seeing today is going to make us scratch our heads a little bit because Paul is going to talk about and actually not just talk about but brag about not his strengths but his weaknesses. He's going to brag about how he's weak and that is just so foreign to us. It's not, it's not the way we're, we're wired as people, as sinners uh, hardwired in, in our sinful nature. We don't want to boast about our weaknesses. That's counter, uh, counterintuitive. It's unnatural. And, and yet what Paul is going to tell us today is going to make us a little bit confused. It may, may even make us a little awkward to hear him talk this way because we're used to hearing people boast about their accomplishments. We're not used to hearing people boast about what makes them pathetic. And that's what we're going to see today. Um, but here's the overarching point that we're going to look at. Uh, and it's really going to be this week and next week, kind of one continuous idea. We just don't have time to unpack chapter 12 uh, in any detail today. So we're splitting this up into two sermons. But the idea here that we have to just come to and realize what Paul's main point is, is that weakness is actually the way to Jesus, not our strength. It is our weakness that is the way to Jesus. And, and that, again, is not natural. It's not wired in us to, to think that way. We are always prone to think we have to impress, we have to do, we have to accomplish. 
we have to be the best or at least somewhere in the top group, right? We, we think that way. And, and yet when it comes to Jesus Christ and what he wants for his people, it's not strength that he's looking for. It's weakness. And I, I was just reminded of this. Uh, there's, a, there's a little book by a guy named J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer passed away uh, this past year in 2020 because as if it couldn't get any worse, you know, we have to lose J.I. Packer too. Um, J.I. Packer died. He was a 93-year-old man at the time that he died. He was a pastor, theologian, wrote many, many books over his life, lifetime. Um, was really one of the most influential Christian leaders of uh, the 20th century. And um, he wrote one of the last books he ever wrote was this little book called Weakness is the Way. Um, and I don't even know if it's still in print, but I'm sure you can get it on Amazon in a, the used section or something. But it's an incredible book. And he basically just unpacks this section of scripture that we're in. Um, and, and he's writing it well into his 80s. So he, w- he was a very old man at the time that he wrote the book. And here's one of the things he says in, in that. He says, in our society, strength, or at least imagined strength, is applauded, and weakness is thought of as a defect. It means that we've missed the best in life. But then he goes on to say that God doesn't allow us to stay with the idea that we're strong. We might have that idea, but the Lord will disabuse us one way or another, and it will be good for us and it, will be, and it will give glory to him when he does so. And that, those words, I think, just resonate with so much of what Paul's going to get at here in this, in this section, in the next section, that it's not about our strength that impresses the Lord Jesus. It's our weakness. And I, I want to just take us through the text. Um, there's like three paragraphs that we're just going to take one at a time. And then I just really want to show you how this really does connect to the gospel. This really is central to what we believe as Christians. And so I want to show us that as well. So um, as we get into this, like I said, it's going to sound a little strange. It's definitely going to be kind of a foreign idea to us. Um, but we're going we're gonna to really get a good grasp on why weakness is the way to Jesus. All right, so let's start here. Um, We'll start in verse 16 and just look down to verse 21, the first half of 21. Um, for some reason, whoever decided on the number system in the Bible just split that verse uh, kind of at a weird place, but that's okay. Um, here's what he says. He says, I repeat, let no one think me foolish. Now, it's kind of weird that he says, I repeat, because he never actually has said this. But um, I think what he's talking about is that this is flowing out of what he's just said in the prior section, where he's talking about these super apostles and how these people who are causing so much problem and so many, so many troubles in the Corinthian church, they're, they're actually, he's saying, he, t- he says it flat out, that they're false apostles. They're workers of Satan. They're not, they're not servants of Christ. And I think what he's anticipating is they're, they're thinking he's crazy, the Corinthians. Um, and so he says, okay, don't think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. 
so that I too may boast a little. Now we got to recognize that the, the whole issue here, we touched on this last Sunday, but the whole issue here is that the super apostles are building themselves up by boasting in their intelligence, boasting in their accomplishments, boasting in all the things that they can do for the church and comparing themselves to Paul and saying, look, Paul's pathetic. We're not pathetic. You should listen to us. And so he's, he's talking, kind of going into this boasting on the super apostle side and saying, listen, I'm going to boast a little bit here too. And then he says, what I say, I say with boastful confidence, I say it not as the Lord would, but as a fool. I think it's important to notice that he's, he says this, um, he uses this little phrase, I say this, or I, I boast um, not as the Lord would. Not as the Lord would. Um, and some, some translations may have not according to the Lord. So there's a couple ways we can understand this. Um, it, it could be that Paul's saying, Jesus is not telling me to say this, and I'm just going to go off script here. I don't really like that uh, interpretation, but that would be kind of the interpretation of not according to the Lord uh, would be like, well, the Lord didn't say this and I'm going to say it. I don't know that that's where Paul's at here. I think the translation, not as the Lord would, gets more to, to where Paul's going, which is simply that Jesus isn't a bragger. Jesus doesn't boast. Jesus is not going to do what Paul's doing here. And so, He's, he's going, so, so Paul's kind of acknowledging that and that he's doing this as a fool. And then he says, since many <clears throat> boast according to the flesh, according to, that could be the, you know, our strength, our physical strength, or it could be our, our, uh, our sinful inclinations. We may, many boast according to the flesh. I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools being wise yourselves. I think he's kind of speaking kind of sarcastically there a little bit. He's, he's making fun of them a bit. Right? He's, again, we got to understand the tension and the dynamics of 2 Corinthians and Paul and those people. Like there was, there was some real hard, hard stuff going on there. And he's trying to kind of prod them in the direction of going, listen, you guys think you're wise. You're not. But if, even if you do, like bear with me if you think I'm a fool. And then he goes on to say, for you bear it, if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. And he's speaking, of course, of how they're being treated by the super apostles. He's like, you're putting up with this abuse. He's not speaking literally of them getting slapped in the face. It's metaphoric language. But, but basically the super apostles are misusing the Corinthians. They're, 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 after their own selfish gain. And Paul, we saw this a lot last week where Paul's going, I didn't come to you with any agenda other than the gospel of Jesus. I'm not here to get from you. I'm here to give to you and they're here to, to take advantage of you. So he says, you guys are putting up with things that, that these people are doing to you. So you can put up with me for a little bit here. And then he says in verse 21, to my shame, I must say, we're too weak for that. Paul says, you guys are putting up with way more than I would from these super apostles. All right, so in all that, that first paragraph, basically, we just got to get this, this idea out in front of us. Paul is acknowledging the insanity of bragging, um, but he's being forced to do it because of his opponents. 
Right? He's, that's really what's happening here. There's not, there's not a ton that we can unpack beyond that. It's really like Paul's just kind of acknowledging the, the, conf, the conflict in his own heart on this. He's going, I don't want to do this because it's not what Jesus would do, but I have to somewhat do this because you guys have put me in a corner and I've, and I've got to defend my apostolic ministry. So Paul's kind of torn. He's between a rock and a hard place, right? And so he's, he's acknowledging the foolishness, the craziness, the, the insanity of what he's going to do. And at the same time, he's going, I have to do this for your sake, for the sake of the Corinthians, to help them break out of their, uh, their, their, just like their days with these false apostles. So he says what he's about to do is foolish. He says that it's not what Jesus would do, but he has to do it. And um, he says, uh, but, but he ultimately concludes this paragraph with what he's about to do is not worse than what the super apostles are already doing to the Corinthians. He's like, look, I, I'm going to brag here. It's not cool to do that. It's, it's not the way Jesus would have me live. However, I'm going to do this and, and it's not any worse than how you're already being treated. All right, so now as we read this, we're, we're expecting Paul to really lay it out there and go, look at how impressive I am. Look at how great I am because you guys are impressed by these, these super apostles. You gotta be impressed by me. That's what we're being led to think is gonna happen. But then look at what happens. This is where it gets really interesting. The second half of verse 21 says, but whatever else, whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the offspring of Abraham? So am I. <clears throat> so he starts here by, by boasting in some ways, not so much trying to put himself above the super apostles, but basically just saying, look, on these issues, the issues of our ethnicity, the issues of where we've come from, uh, we, we're on the same platform. They're not better than me on this. They're not worse than me on this. If they're Hebrews, Israelites, children of Abraham, kind of just synonyms of the same thing, being ethnically uh, Jewish, the, the apostles, the super apostles, don't beat Paul on that point because Paul is those things too. He is all of that. So Paul's going, all right, so that's a wash. They've got that. They're bragging about that. Well, I'm that too. So they, they don't really have any ground to stand on there. But then look at the next question in verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? Well, they say they are, but Paul has already established his point of view on this and really the Holy Spirit's point of view on this because of the inspiration of these words, um, that they're not actually servants of Christ. But, but let's assume they are. Let's, they, they would say they are. So now here's where it starts to get interesting. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. Well, that's braggy, right? That's braggy, no, no doubt. And then look at what he says next. He says, I am talking like a madman. <laughs> I, I love it. I, like, Paul just puts these little like, parentheses in here because he's going, he's so conflicted with what he's doing. I just, you can just, you can see it as you read it. You're like, oh, this dude does not feel comfortable writing this down. Uh, but he's going, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better servant of Christ than they are, even though I know that makes me sound insane. 
Because that's like so antithetical to, to the very heart of being a servant of Christ. Being a servant of Christ means that we're humble, not proud, not braggy, not boasting, right? So that's where, that's where all of this madman talk is coming from and the, all this stuff he's talking about being a fool in the first section. So are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. And then look at how he defends the argument. Again, it's not bragging if it's true, right? And it is true that Paul's a better servant of Christ than they were. So, because they're not servants of Christ at all. So if we're going to go with that theory that it's not bragging if it's true, which may not actually be true, but um, here's, here's his, basically he starts laying out his resume for why he's a better servant of Christ. Look at this. It says, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Why he doesn't say 39 lashes, I don't know, but that's, that's okay. Um, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, that's having things thrown at you, not the other kind of stoned. Um, <laughs> that's so sacrilegious, but I make that joke every time I preach this passage. Um, all right, sorry. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And verse 28, and apart from all the other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul deeply loved the churches uh, throughout the world that he had an involvement with, and he's, he describes his, his uh, feelings toward them as anxiety, like he's actually concerned deeply about them, and he feels this daily pressure for them. He says, Who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is made to fall, and I'm not indignant? All right, so as we read that list, there's very little in that list that's like impressive except for the fact that Paul's still alive, <laughs> right? I mean, he's barely, but all he's going through are these, these horrific things that he endured. This, now, we got to understand how the Corinthians the, and just the Greek world of the time would have interpreted this See, this is one of the big things that the, that the super apostles were using to actually get to the Corinthians and say, Paul's not a true apostle because look at how much Paul suffers. That's actually one of the things that they're trying to get at. So they're saying, like, Paul is going through all these horrible, horrible things. How could God let Paul go through these horrible things if, if Paul was really God's guy? If Paul's really Jesus' guy, why would Jesus let him go through all this? That doesn't make sense. It's basically the pre-pre-pre health and wealth gospel, right? 
Same gospel, false gospel that we hear preached all the time, that if you just believe enough, God will give you all that you need or you'll never get sick or you'll never have problems. This, this whole false gospel of health and wealth was definitely being believed by these people. And, and Paul is not trying to back away from that, but he's actually using his suffering, using his weaknesses as uh, the, the very resume that he needs to prove that he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. He says, this makes me a better servant of Christ than them because I've gone through these things, because I'm weak, because I've suffered. He, 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 I mean, these are just horrendous things. I mean, just think about what he's saying he's gone through. And, and much of these are, are talked about in the book of Acts. We don't have time to look at everyone, but pretty much everyone can be cross-referenced back to Acts uh, in some way or another where Paul is uh, going through all these things. But I mean, look at this. It's like, okay, far more imprisonments. I, I, I was thrown in prison more, way more times than the super apostles were. <laughs> is, that a way, is that a bragging point? Apparently. Countless beatings. He's like, I've been beat so many times, I, don't even, I can't even remember how many times. I can remember being beat maybe three or four times in my life, okay? That's about, how about you? I don't know how many times you've been beat, uh, but I went to college and we used to have a fight club and stuff, so I've been beat a few times. Um, that's a whole other story for a whole other day, but yeah. Uh, but anyways, that was my own doing. Um, right? He, he says five times, on five different occasions, he received these 39 lashes, 40 lashes less one. So the idea, so here's the thing, in the law... Uh, the Old Testament law, um, the, the highest penalty besides death uh, would have been 40 lashes. And by the time Jesus came around, uh, the rabbis of that day really, really did not want to uh, break the law, by, and even by accident. So they only permitted people to get 39 lashes in case the guy counting miscounted. Okay, so you got a couple there built in that you could, before you broke the law. So they only hit him 39 times. But, but the point of this is that Paul's receiving the highest penalty uh, outside of the death penalty, which the Jewish people weren't allowed to, to do at this point in life because of the Roman occupation. The Romans had to kill prisoners. The Jews were not allowed to do that. But they could still do the 39 or 40 lashes minus one. So... So Paul received that on five occasions. Can you imagine being beaten five different times, 40 with, with 39 hits? I mean, this is crazy what Paul's gone through. And most of the time that happened because he would go and he'd preach Jesus. All the times, that's, that's what happened. He would preach Jesus and the Jewish leaders were not happy about that. So he got, he got beaten. And then it says he was shipwrecked three times. I mean, he was beaten a few other times in between there. I skipped, but shipwrecked three times. So the first time, you're like, okay, it was a fluke. Second time, I'm not getting back on a boat a third time. But Paul loved Jesus more than me, I guess, because he's going, I'm, I, I got to go tell people about Jesus. So on three occasions, he gets shipwrecked, and he's adrift at sea over one night. Just imagine, I mean, these are, this is not like, Paul's not making this up. These are stuff, the, things that actually happened to him. He actually went through these things. And we can't even imagine, for most of us, the kind of suffering he endured. And then, of course, he puts the worst of all, the worst suffering, the, the biggest weakness in his life is his anxiety for the churches. 
He's going, I, I, every day I feel this pressure to love and help and serve the churches. And so then he asked the question, verse 29, who is weak if I'm not weak? Who is weak if I'm not weak? Who is made to fall and I'm not indignant? Paul is bringing out and bragging about his weaknesses. And we're going to see why uh, in just a few minutes here. But we got one more paragraph to work through. Really, the answer comes down in verse 30, the first sentence in this new paragraph. Paul kind of summarizes the whole point of what he's trying to say here. Look at what it says. He says, if I must boast, if I must boast, if I have to brag, he says, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. If I have to boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Now, the reason for that is going to be made really clear next week in chapter 12. He's going he's to dig way into that sentence. So we're not going to bury the lead and go all in on that. But that's the overarching idea, that weakness is the way to get to Jesus. And, and so he then has one more example He gives one more example of why he's weak. Verse 31, the the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows I'm not lying. So he prefaces what he's about to say with this like, like swearing swearing on the Bible kind of thing, right? This idea of I'm going to just, I'm telling the truth. The God and Father of Jesus Christ knows I'm not lying about what I'm about to say. So we're, if you just read that, you're thinking, oh, he's going he's gonna to say something really, really scandalous or crazy or whatever. But then look at what, what he says, verse 32 and 33. He says, at Damascus, the governor under King Aratus was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hand. Why is Paul so, like, what, what's the big deal here? Like, Paul has just admitted that he has been beaten within an inch of his life countless times, that he's been shipwrecked three times, that he's had stones thrown at him to, to, have, to be killed, that, that he's gone hungry, that he's gone without sleep, that he's, he, like, all this stuff seems so much worse. And then he gets to the end of this section and he's going, and on top of it, I, I'm not lying. I, I swear I'm not lying that when I was in Damascus, this guy was trying to arrest me and I had to be let out through a wall, through a window and escaped in a basket. What's the big deal? <laughs> and actually that story is recounted in, in the book of Acts as well and you can read it at some point. But th- this is, it's kind of a weird thing that like Paul's freaking out so much about this. So I, I did a little bit of reading on it, and the, a guy named um, a guy named D. A. Carson, who's a professor at Trinity uh, Divinity School in Chicago area, or was I think he's retired now, but he wrote a commentary on just the last like three three chapters of Second Corinthians, just chapters ten through thirteen, and um, in that commentary he talks about this. He talks about why Paul is sharing what he considers to be the most humbling or perhaps humiliating thing that ever happened to him, which is what he's doing in these verses. He's sharing 
from his point of view, something that, is, that shows so much weakness that he's embarrassed to even say it. And to us, we're reading this and going, that's not that big of a deal. <laughs> like you were going to be arrested in Damascus and you had to get out and so, so you were let down in a basket and you were able to get away. Like what's the big deal? Well, here's what uh, C.S. Uh, C. Lewis, I always say C.S. Lewis because that's what I always quote. D.A. Carson, and all these initials too. Why don't they just use their names? I don't know. Uh, D.A. Carson uh, says, um, he says this, that this was probably the event in Paul's life that destroyed whatever pride still existed in his proud heart. He had set out for Damascus. If you remember the story when, G- when Jesus converted Paul, where was he? He was on the road to Damascus, right? And what was he going to do when he went to Damascus? Remember, he was a Pharisee at this time. He hated the church. He was a persecutor of the church. And he was going to Damascus to round up and, and arrest Christians. And then Jesus meets him there uh, before he gets to the city, blinds him, brings him down, brings him from Saul, the name Saul, to eventually going by Paul, which the word, the name Paul means small and humble. Saul, of course, was named after the, the proudest king in Israel's history, right? There's a contrast there. Paul stops going by Saul eventually because he wants to display a change in his life. Um, but anyway, so D.A. Carson says that he set out for the city of Damascus with the intention of rounding up Christians, but he left that city not as the hunter, but as the hunted And so that's where Paul's at. And I think this just crushed Paul's pride that he went into that city initially with the desire to to round everybody up, to be the strong and powerful dude who could who could show all these Christians what's up and squash the church. And he he that was him. That was his mission in life. And then Jesus got a hold of him. And Jesus didn't let him get out of that city without some serious humiliation but for good, for his good. He was brought down. He, had to, he couldn't get out of that city without hiding in a fish basket, a basket that would have delivered fish from the ground up to the city walls. So this smelly, nasty, disgusting basket that reeked of, of fish, you know, fish guts, he's hiding in that, being lowered down by the disciples in that city. And then he runs for his life as a hunted man. That's a humbling thing. That's a humbling thing. And Paul saves the best, in his opinion, the best and weakest thing for last. Now, he's, we're going to pause here and we're going to continue this discussion next week, but just as we stop and reflect on what we're seeing today, I, I think what we need to realize is that boasting in our weakness, is the way to Jesus because it's at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. Let me give you a few examples. So we're going to just bounce around to, a, to three different passages. But I, I want you to understand that strength does not impress Jesus. It's our weakness that impresses Jesus because it's our weakness that drives us to him. Our inability is actually what makes us savable. Look at, look at the first thing I'm going to point us to. It's in Luke 18, 9 through 14. Um, it says, he also, Jesus is speaking here, he told this parable to some 
who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Key word there, trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Here's the story. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I'm not an extortioner, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified, made right with God, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. So what is the contrast that Jesus points out between the tax collector and the Pharisee? It's one is a prideful man who believes that his accomplishments make him right with God, and the other recognizes he's just a sinner. He needs mercy. There's nothing in him to save himself. And this really is the heart of the Christian life, right? That we acknowledge our sinfulness. That is a weakness that we're admitting to. We're admitting to weakness when we, when we admit that we're sinners. And what we need is Jesus's perfection to be applied to our lives through, his, through the cross. We acknowledge our weakness to become Christians by acknowledging we're sinners. Look at the next thing here, Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. Paul says here to the Ephesian church, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at, the, at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Now, what, is, what are those verses telling us? Well, the, we love those verses. We, we preach on those all the time here. We believe that the, that really is foundationally the gospel, that we were dead in our sins and God made us alive because of his mercy. But here's the, here's the key thing there. The first part of that section in verse one, it says, and you were dead. Now, here's the question. What can a dead person do for themselves? It's not a trick question. Nothing. They can't bring themselves to the church where everybody's going to remember their life. They can't put themselves in the ground. They're, they're help, literally helpless. Literally have inability, complete inability to do anything. Paul says we're spiritually dead. We're not dead physically, right? He's talking about our souls, our, our hearts to God. We were dead in our sins, which means we could not do anything to help ourselves. So what did we need? We needed God to love us and to save us and to make us alive. 
Being a Christian means we acknowledge our inability to save ourselves and Jesus' ability to save us. All right, one more. 1 Corinthians, we're going to go back to a Corinthian here, the, the other one. Uh, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 26 through 31. For considering your, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Here's Paul's point to the, to the same church he's writing to that we just looked at. In a different letter he wrote to them. He's saying we have to acknowledge our need for Jesus' grace. Paul starts that whole section with, think about your own calling. Think about your own lives. You weren't wise according to the world standards. You weren't strong according, but God chooses what is foolish and God chooses what is weak and God chooses all these, these sad people, right? People that are not impressive, that are not of noble birth, that he, he brings these people in and in him and because of him, we are in Christ Jesus we have to acknowledge that we have nothing to bring to the table. It's all Jesus. It's only Jesus. And if, if we don't get to this point, right, where, where we acknowledge, hey, I'm a sinner, and that implies weakness, and I am unable, I have an inability to save myself, and I need Jesus, or I, I absolutely cannot impress anyone at all, and so I need the grace of Jesus. If we're not there, we're not Christians. And if we are Christians, it means we've done these things. So that's why Paul is, is boasting in his weaknesses, not because it's impressive to the Corinthians, but because it's the very thing that gets him to Christ, and it's the very thing that gets us to Christ. Our weakness, not our strength, is the way to Jesus. I'm excited we get to go back into chapter 12 next week. And that is, I mean, Paul's just going to keep on hammering this home. And it's, it's going to be really important for us to hear this too. But for now, we got to stop there. And I hope that we'll, as, we, as we leave this place, that we don't leave with some false notion of our impressiveness as if that's why God loves us. But that God loves us in our very unimpressiveness and our patheticness in our weakness. He loves you in those things. Don't be ashamed of your weakness. Know that those weaknesses only serve to bring you closer to Jesus, and that's what he wants from all of us. So let's pray together. Um, Father, we thank you that we are, are loved so well by you that, that our weakness does not discourage you or prevent you from loving us, but it's in fact, in fact the very thing that we that we have to have for you to bring us to you. So I pray, God, that you would break down any residual pride in my life, 
that you would continue to break that down more and more. I pray that for these people here too. You know each and every one of us. You know where we are. You know where our hearts are at. And I just pray, God, that you would continue to, to chisel away those, those places in our lives where we are not clinging to you and depending on you and trusting in you. And we pray that we would, we would learn what you have to teach us today, um, that, that we would begin to apply those things to our lives. And we pray that we would bring you honor in our weaknesses. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.